Thank you very much, Andres, for being so welcoming uh, this morning, and thank you, Gina, for reading for us. May I add my welcome to that of Andres, especially if this is your first time. I see some people that I haven't seen uh, before. Um, I, I hope this is going to be a wonderful time this morning uh, with Grace Church. Indeed, especially if this is your first few days in Riga, you might still, thank you, be wondering, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? And maybe I, you, you, you're for some time with us already. And you're still asking, what, what, what am I still doing here in Riga, uh, you know, in, in, in Latvia? And these are important questions we, we should be asking ourselves. And I hope that Grace Church, the Grace community, is going to help you this time, um, especially as we're looking at 1 Timothy, to, to answer those questions. But let me start us off uh, by asking a different question. Namely, the question, what is God doing in this world? Should I just bring this slightly up? Okay, very low sound. Okay, well, let, let me just fix it slightly. Okay, maybe it's a bit off. Good. Sorry for this technical uh, interruption, but that just gives us a little, little time. Very good. Yes. Is, is it better? Yes. yes. yes very good. Um, so what is God doing in this world? Uh, what is God's chief concern um, in this world? Now, um, there, there are many, many sort of answers to this question. But is God's chief concern to improve um, our well-being, our material life, quality of life in this world? You, you might be thinking, you know, I... I have ended up in Europe, you know, it opens up a lot of opportunities for me, uh, you know, to travel around and, uh, you know, the, the Christianity is good, the community is great, uh, it's a great add-on, but God is really here for me and, and my well-being, you know, or is, God, is God's chief concern uh, to provide me with other opportunities for making a, a better living in this world? In other words, is God's chief concern uh, my best life now? Now, indeed, in our today's passage, we have one of the clearest descriptions of God's chief concern for this world. And it comes in chapter 1, verse 15. So, please glance with me at the first trustworthy saying in chapter 1, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Right here, we have a challenge, don't we? What do we make of this trustworthy saying? Do we trust it? Do we accept it to be God's chief concern for the world? And how does that cash out in our lives? What might, what might cause us to distrust this saying, this truth, or even reject it? Well, just this week I chatted with one of the medical students here. We were talking about the challenges Christians face in our culture, especially in relation to suffering, in relation to sin. 
and we agree that it's enormous, enormous pressure to be a Christian in today's culture. How easy it would be to just smile and wave to the world and go into the monastery, you know, to be with the holy, holy, holy ones. But is that Christian response in the light of the gospel? And so my main, main idea for today is that the, the Grace Church, the Grace Church, is a church that confesses Christ Jesus, the hope for sinners, and act accordingly, fights for grace. Now last Sunday, as already Anders mentioned, we began the series of 1 Timothy called The Grace Church, and we saw that The Grace Church is an assembly of unique people gathered for a unique purpose, a family of the living God called to get behind the work of God. The work of God is saving people from judgment through the gospel. And therefore his church is called to hold up like a buttress and hold out like a pillar the gospel truth to the lost world. Yes, yes, the charge was to keep fighting, uh, to, to, to keep fighting for the gospel was laid particularly to Timothy, the church leader. It is Timothy who has to stay in Ephesus, verse 3, to refute the error. But we saw as the church is reading the letter, so to speak, across Timothy's shoulder, it has to make up uh, her own mind. What are we to do in light of what God has said? Shall we be the church that fights for grace? What might stop us from doing it? It is often this sense of inadequacy, inexperience, even inferiority, isn't it? Perhaps it, has, it is an academic environment for you students uh, uh, that discourages you from sticking it out. Or maybe it's, it's a workplace culture that prevents you from speaking up about Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, if you feel like that sometimes, either in your university or your workplace, you are not alone. I think Timothy might have felt the same. Perhaps that is why Paul repeats his charge. Did you notice in our today's reading in verse 18, Paul repeats his charge from verse 3. This charge I entrust you, and slightly later, wage the good warfare. But will Timothy be up for, for, for the task? What might hold Timothy back from waging the good warfare, fighting for grace? It could be a sense of being inexperienced, inadequate, even inferior. Turn to chapter 4 and verse 12. Uh, Paul specifically speaks about that. Let, 4.12, let no one despise your youth, Timothy. Don't fall into the trap. They will make your age an issue. Don't, don't fall in the trap. Or surely it could be the, the surrounding culture that takes its pride in pagan identity. 
in Ephesus. In Acts 19, 34, we, we read about this great riot in the city and this chief slogan, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine thousands of people repeating that phrase in full voice. How timid Tim, Timothy might have felt. And of course, it could be nature of the false teaching that they're you know, springing up in the church. It could be, uh, as we saw, legalism or, you know, progressive theology. We'll unpack that towards the end of the sermon. Or prosperity gospel, um, chapter 6, verse 5, where some think that godliness is a means of gain. It's, it's worth to go to church and do these Christian things. And maybe I'll get something back from God when I, if I do that. And how do you talk to people about the unseen blessings of Christ when others make Christianity all about the best life now? How do you do that? And so you feel inadequate, inferior, uh, inexperienced. Now, Timothy, the, uh, Timothy the, the, the church in Ephesus and the church in Riga really need a reminder about our identity, ultimate reality, about who Jesus is, about why he's come. Mercy with grace, faith, and loving Jesus, friends, are, 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 is our reality. So that, so that we could also keep sticking it out, fighting for grace. So I think that is how uh, verses 12 to 17 in our today's reading fit in. So these verses work as a confirmation and a reminder about the gospel that sets apart Paul and Timothy from the certain persons of the last week of chapter 1. Like Hymenaeus, like Alexander, who have rejected the gospel and teach different Doctrine. So firstly, a reminder uh, that, that Jesus is behind Paul's ministry. Jesus is behind Paul's life. Now glance at verses 13 and 16. Here's our key phrase. But I received mercy. That's what sets Paul apart. I received mercy. That's what sets apart Paul's ministry and Paul's life from these false teachers in Ephesus. That's God's mercy and God's grace. Now, you might be wondering what this word mercy means. Mercy simply means that Paul didn't get what he deserved. So he says he refers to himself as being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent in verse 13. But instead of being condemned, verse 12, Jesus judged him, judged Paul to be faithful. Paul didn't get what he deserved. That's mercy. So he was appointed to the service of Christ. And Paul's ministry is authorized by Christ himself, as opposed to the self-appointed teachers in Ephesus. And Paul witnessed, speaks about that in Acts. We read about that in Acts, his conversion on, on the road to Damascus. And that is why Paul can claim that this gospel is the sound doctrine and, and everything else that is taught it's not according to it. That's nonsense. 
However, the gospel was entrusted to Paul not because of his intrinsic faithfulness, but, verse 13, because formerly he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And that was until, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, in urging Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, Paul draws a stark contrast between them and him. The basis of their difference is God's mercy and grace that sets up our Paul's ministry and doctrine. That's the key thing. I received mercy. Now, I, I feel a need to pause here for, for a moment. I was encouraged by my dear, dear brothers in our preaching group that we do every Monday, Monday afternoon to shed some more light on what might this false teaching, this, this legalism of, of chapter 1, uh, the first part, what might that look actually today? Namely, genealogy myth and unlawful use of law. So, let me have a, have a second go. Myth and genealogies, it is basically, it's, it's a way of, of basing your significance and your security in connection with other human beings. It can be your biological family, it can be the dynasty that you've come from, you know, I became a Christian in a, in a denomination where some took a great pride coming out of that or being connected to this, 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 um, fam this family, large family, that started a particular movement. If you can show that, you, that you're connected to, or your granddad, or grand-granddad, started this movement of faithful believers, uh, that were devoting their lives to God, then your significance and your security are presumed. And you can find Carlos uh, after the service and ask him, uh, he, he knows uh, some of it, uh, even better from his own experience. Many doors are open for you. Your, uh, the, the trust is credited to you automatically. But we are not okay because our grand granddad was faithful or our grandfather was a pastor. It doesn't make us okay with God automatically. But it's not just a bi biological family. It, it can be preoccupation with genealogies that take a spiritual form, significance and security because you are connected to a particular camp or a particular the a theological school or well-known church. Should I be trusted only because I have been trained in a well-known Bible teaching church in London or done a Reformed theological seminary in Riga? Or should Andres be um, credited trust only because he was associated with a well-known Bible teaching constituency back in Sydney, Australia. Now imagine Paul asking a counter question. Should Hymenaeus and Alexander be trusted because they were around when I planted the church in, in Ephesus? 
Well, not that I would or Andres would want to be associated with Hymenaeus, or Alexander, of course not. But just imagine Paul taking the thought further. Friends, the only thing that makes us fit for purpose as his servants is mercy that we received, nothing else. Do we confess mercy today, not yesterday? How the grace of our Lord overflowed me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do I confess this truth today? Do we preach and teach today, not yesterday, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which Paul has been entrusted? Our significance and security is not found in connection with other people but only in being connected to Jesus. So no myths, no genealogies are going to help us. God has redefined his people according to the faithfulness of Messiah, Jesus. And that is what precise, we, um, yeah, that is what precisely that the teachers in, in Ephesus failed to grasp the new identity of the people of God. And that is why they were using law unlawfully. So, a little more light on legalism. Legalism is teaching that you can be right with God through your obedience to Him. Law, says Paul elsewhere, cannot justify you before God. Why? Because its purpose is entirely different. Law reveals sin. That's why it can't justify you. And to use it like it can. Like it can justify you. That's legalism. That's wrong. Your security and significance cannot be based on what you do. It cannot be based on that. Again, I became a Christian in a denomination that put a great emphasis on holiness and holy living. So when I became Christian, I quickly learned that being a Christian means no alcohol, no smoking, no playing cards, no dancing, and similar things. Now imagine a degree of suspicion towards me after some people learned that I used to, um, I used to work as a bartender with a 30-year-old career in ballroom dancing. I mean, they were very suspicious of me. But that is beside the point. Point being, legalism means confusing a response to being saved with a, the condition under which we are being saved. Friends, don't misunderstand me. Bible encourages holiness. Bible encourages holy living. We are to become more like Jesus. And for some... It will mean no alcohol, no smoking, no gambling, no dancing, no cinema whatsoever. But for others, it will be entirely different things. But know this, God didn't save you because you dropped some of your harmful habits. He isn't saving you even now because you keep away from some of these harmful habits in your life. That's not the reason. Nor is he saving you because you do other good things. 
namely positively, like reading Bible, uh, praying, doing quiet times, attend, attending Bible studies, uh, giving to the gospel work, your money. It's not the reason why God keeps saving you. Not at all. If anyone tells you different, he's a legalist. Yes, all these things are essential response to God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope. All of them. But it is not that, that by doing these things we are in right standing with God. Friends, our salvation is not conditioned upon doing. Now you must have heard this thousand times. I even remember when I was here and Malcolm still preached. You know, he used this wonderful contrast. You might have heard this. So here for the thousand and first time, our salvation is conditioned upon done. Jesus, our hope has done it. It is so crucial to understand this. Seeking a righteous life comes as a response to God who granted us righteousness, righteous faith. Okay? Seeking to be like Jesus is a response to God who saved us in Jesus. Let's never mix up the two. That's what the false teachers in Ephesus did. I mean, we all naturally are legalists. We have to confess it. By human nature, we are works righteousness orientated. Until God opens our eyes. Until God opens our, our understanding to the wonders of the cross. We will not appreciate the, the, or cherish the grace of God in Jesus. We will live according works righteousness. We desperately need God opening our eyes every day to the wonders of uh, the grace and the cross. And that is what the false teachers in Ephesus had rejected. They had rejected Jesus, sin-bearing death on the cross. The only means of getting right with God. Instead, they thought that by obeying the law, you can be right with God. That is, Paul says, blasphemy. That is emptying cross of its meaning. Paul saw it and he wrote to Timothy to put an end to this false teaching in the church. Paul was commanded by God and appointed by Christ to serve the gospel. So unlike the self-appointed teachers in Ephesus, he had a right to demand it. Paul's ministry is built on mercy and grace that are rooted in the cross of Christ. And so is his life. Just, just glance with me in, in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, it is a beautiful, standalone description of the gospel, isn't it? It reveals the greatest need of every human being on this planet. Sinners are the reason Jesus had to come on this earth. It reveals God's love for the lost. It reveals Jesus' gracious commitment to his Father. It speaks volumes of Jesus' humility 
in forsaking his heavenly glory and coming as a son on this on this earth. Now her her majesty uh, the queen uh, had said although we are capable of great acts of kindness history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves from our recklessness or our greed and then he, she wonderfully concluded God sent into the world a unique person neither a philosopher nor a general important though they are but a savior with a power to forgive now paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost so i think the surprise in verse 15 it comes unexpected to us really regarding paul as the chief sinner did you, did you spot it i think we are meant to be shocked even more so we uh, we meant to be shocked when we we realize that paul doesn't speak about himself in the past no he says of whom i am the foremost I think this is significant because it sheds some more light on what it means to save. What it means for God to save. For Paul, salvation is, is mostly future-orientated. Something that the believer will receive when Jesus comes back. But because Paul keeps referring to himself as sinner in present, salvation also means to save from present sinfulness. Isn't that very encouraging? Jesus patiently saves us in present now by transforming us more and more in his likeness. In fact, Jesus' perfect patience is the reason why Paul received mercy. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The patience of Jesus is such a perfect char characteristic of the gospel, isn't it? As opposed to legalism. Now, legalist, legalist looks at other sinners and legalist says, I can do it. You should be able to do it. And if you cannot do it, you're not accepted. That's what legalist says. You know, I can keep my alcohol consumption uh, in check. What's wrong with you? Why can't you? Or... I can prioritize three Bible studies a week. Now, if you cannot do that, or even attend one, you're hardly a Christian. So that's what legalist says when he looks at other sinners. But justified sinners, as Martin Luther kept referring to himself, on the other hand, looks at other sinners and says, 
If Christ can do it for me, he can do it for everyone. Jesus' patience with our ongoing sin, friends, it makes us compassionate towards those who likewise struggle with many things. I have found that those who themselves battle sin severely are much more patient, are much more kind to other sinners. Now, how deeply aware are we about our, our sinfulness? That's a question. I think the more we are, the more we'll appreciate grace, mercy, Christ's patience with us every day. And now there is a massive difference between legalist and justified sinner. The life of legalist is characterized in, in chapter 6, verse 4, by controversy, quarrels about the words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. There is no peace and unity around legalists. No wonder there is no joy and thanksgiving in the life of such people. But as Paul reflects on Christ's mercy, grace, and love in saving the chief sinner like him, he bursts out in adoration. That's why we have verse 17 here. Suddenly, suddenly in the middle of everything, Paul bursts out in praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul clearly realizes at this point, the gospel is about the glory of God and the glory of his people. And Paul really wants this, this young pastor, Timothy, to remember it. And not to lose sight of the, this bigger picture. There is only one way for people to be saved from God's judgment. And that is through the overflowing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy must remember it so that he would wage the good warfare, fight for grace. But secondly, Paul goes on from verses 18 to 20, uh, telling Timothy and confirming that Jesus, the same Jesus who is behind Paul's ministry and life, is also behind Timothy's ministry with all his authority. So will Timothy be up for the task to fulfill, fulfill the command. What will keep him focused on fighting for grace in Ephesus? I think if it is if he keeps his eyes on the cross, God's magnificent display of grace for the sinners. If God could save Paul, he will do the same for Timothy. So again, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Timothy, remember, remember that you are a genuine Christian, true child. And Timothy, remember, remember that the leaders has confirmed that about you 
So prophecies previously made about you, so Timothy waged the good warfare. Fight for grace. Now every time I come back to the pastoral epistles, I am reminded of this quote from The Gladiator by Ridley Scott. Do you know the film Gladiator? Most of us, most of us have, yes. So in the opening scene of this amazing, amazing film, there is a dialogue between the Emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, and Maximus, who is the general uh, of the Roman army, uh, played by Russell Crowe. So, so here's the dialogue. Marcus Aurelius asks, asks a question. Tell me again, Maximus, why are we here? Maximus replies, for the glory of the empire, sir. And the implication of the emperor's question is, this is worth fighting for, isn't it? So if Paul would paraphrase this, or if we would, Paul would, Paul would ask a question. Now tell me, Timothy, why did I leave you in Ephesus? Timothy says, for the glory of the gospel, sir. And Paul would say in 18, then fight for grace. Wage the good warfare. Keep holding faith and good conscience, unlike these emerging, emerging teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know exactly what they, what they taught. There might be some hints in 2 Timothy, but I'm not going to speculate about that here. But one thing is clear from verse 19. They have rejected faith. They have rejected good conscience. They have rejected grace and so made shipwreck of their faith. Well, that's a vivid, vivid way to, to refer to rejection of the gospel. I think Paul's purpose of illustrating that so vividly is that the teachers have ruined themselves. Those teachers will ruin others. And then they have brought ruin on the gospel. That's why Paul mentions them by name. Now, bringing gospel to ruin is the reason for their excommunication from the church. That is what, what simply put verse 20 and handing over to Satan means. It's not some kind of you know, dark, dark magic ritual that Paul sort of performs in a dark room somewhere. No, handing over to Satan simply means that these guys are visibly excommunicated from the community and left in the world where the spirit of the power of the air is still very much in charge you know Ephesians 2 2 um, it, it's to some extent the dominion of the Satan still whereas the community of the people of God is the dominion of God so fight for grace because it's worth fighting for Timothy it brings eternal life, verse 16. Indeed, Paul's language is military. Did you notice that? Charge them. Wage the war. If so, Timothy doesn't have much an option, doesn't he? But to obey the command. It's Paul's command. It's Christ's command through Paul. And if so, neither do we have much an option but to wage the good warfare. But what will it mean for us? here today to wage the good warfare as a church. 
Now, 1 Timothy will talk more about the manner of the good warfare later. So I'm not going to touch on hows of the, the warfare. How should we wage it now? Instead, I want briefly to take a look in, in conclusion um, at what I think is one of the major threats to grace that we should be fighting against. There are many, of course. But I think in light of where we are, in light of our current environment, culture surrounding even Christian culture, because that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesus, I think it is um, a, a thing called progressive Christianity. The key word is progressive. When you see that word, you know, are we, are we a progressive? We are open-minded. Just, just run from it. Turn around and run. Now, you might ask, why do you not focus on the prosperity gospel instead? Well, I think that that, that teaching is quite easy to spot. You know, we immediately see, you know, obey God, you'll get a lot of money, you know, do this, and, you know, God will reward you now, next week, next month. And so it's easy to spot. And so we are, our, our guard is on immediately. However, the progressive teachers, they are a bit more tricky. They unashamedly represent themselves as the mainstream Christianity. Uh, pure and sound. And that's, my friends, more deceiving, isn't it? But know, know that this is the teaching we have to wage a good, a good warfare against. So how do, you, how do you spot something that's called, you know, a progressive Christianity? Um, so I think mainly three things. It is the, the way they view Jesus, the way Jesus is presented. They would, they would shy away from explaining 115 to you and the idea that Jesus is the life-giving Lord and Savior who died in the place of sinners on the cross. They would shy away from that. Instead, Jesus is presented only as a moral example to Christian life, a sort of, you know, big brother who, who has his uh, sort of, you know, hand around you. And I think naturally from that flows the second, which is moralism. In, 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 in progressive Christianity, you, you have moralism uh, as the dom you know, domineering teaching. If it all ultimately depends on me, okay, or your following uh, uh, Jesus' example, if that's true, then all you need really is only moral guideline, nothing else. You know, the law is laid down for righteous. Does that ring any bells? If Jesus is not someone who has to be worshipped, adored, then he's simply someone who has to be you know, emulated. So the highest goal in Christian life, according to the progressive Christianity, is, is to be a good person. You know, Help an old lady across the street, you know, buy, buy something for, for someone. It's, it's all sort of moralism. And thirdly, I think, it's, lo well, logically, low view of sin, isn't it? 
So in progressive Christianity, humans will be very much good at their core. They, they, they're not fallen at all. So there is no talk about God being angry at sin, uh, God being a jealous God. So ultimately, in progressive Christianity, the cross isn't something that really saves you. So 115 wouldn't be really true. So wrapping it up, progressive Christianity is no Christianity at all. And that is Christianity without Christ. That is redemption without ransom. That is salvation without cross. That's eternal life without resurrection. And we could continue the list. There is no good news in progressive Christianity. Only shipwreck, as Paul says. And do you see why Paul is urging Timothy here to fight for grace? Because otherwise, the church is going to be ruined. Ruined by moralism, legalism, worldview of sin, and entirely different Jesus, who is not a saviour of sinners. So friends, will we continue to be the grace church of 1 Timothy? If yes, let us wage the good warfare. Let us keep fighting for grace. Let us be speaking up about Jesus in our university or in our workplace. Let us honor Jesus in that way. So the same is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Indeed, Heavenly Father, we marvel at your grace and mercy that you have shown to all the sinners in Christ Jesus. Indeed, your gospel is so glorious that Paul bursts out in praise and adoration. Oh, gracious Father, please help us Help us not to be deceived or fall asleep by our surrounding culture and progressive Christianity that makes low view of sin and saviour and makes much of uh, uh, a man. Although we are nothing but just, we're nothing but sinners that deserve your wrath. But your mercy that you have showed us in Jesus. So Father, please, as we think about waging the good warfare for the gospel, uh, help us remember Christ and Christ's authority that he achieved at his cross, that is behind Paul, is behind Timothy, and is behind his people as they dare to speak up about Jesus in their daily walk with him. And so, Father, as we grasp that and realize that, may we also exclaim to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.